Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Horses. What does it feel like to be in love with a horse? I want to be a famous rider. MGM's National Velvet. The exciting story of a girl, a horse, and a dream. In color. National Velvet from 1944 is just one in a long line of movies about the bond between a girl and her horse. There's Black Beauty, Dreamer, Flicka, The Horse Whisperer. The list goes on and on. But what about the bond between a woman and her horse? Christina Fisher's horse Lex, a champion show jumper, was so important to her that she planned to ride him at her wedding. But just 10 days before the wedding, enter the IRS. They seized Lex from stables in the mountains of western North Carolina and drove him down to Delray Beach, Florida, despite Christina's pleas. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter David Voriakis, who wrote about the story. So, David, tell us about Christina and Lex. Christina Fisher is a lifelong equestrian whose favorite horse, Lex, is a big athletic jumper and she was planning her wedding in early May. She was visiting her mother in Atlanta when she learned that IRS agents arrived at the stables in western North Carolina where she kept Lex and that IRS agents were seizing Lex because her father, Jack Fisher, was under indictment. He'd been accused of generating $1.3 billion in fraudulent tax deductions for investors in syndicated deals that conserved land. And the IRS was seizing pre-conviction a bunch of assets for Jack Fisher, including the horse, which he had bought for Christina as a gift in early 2017. They'd also seized an airplane, a Mercedes, a 45-foot recreational vehicle, and Lex. They put liens on real estate they could seize if he's convicted. But for Christina Fisher, this was a terrible event because she was a couple hundred miles away in Atlanta. And Lex is a champion show jumping horse. They had jumped together in about 10 events a year for several years. He'd also had a couple of bad accidents in which he'd fallen and hurt his neck and his back. So he was on a special metabolic diet, and she was very concerned that he would not be handled properly by the IRS agents. She was on the phone talking to IRS agents, and they would not stop until she got there. 
They went ahead and took the horse to a trainer in southern North Carolina for evaluation, and then they took him by police escort down to Delray Beach, Florida. And she also believed strongly that she had nothing to do with the fraud that her father is accused of. Just to clarify, this was a gift to her years ago. They're not accusing her of doing anything. They're certainly not accusing the horse of doing anything, but they're still taking this horse. Right. It's the position of the government that this was an asset that he bought with proceeds of the fraud. And so they're trying to seize and ultimately liquidate those assets that are purchased with proceeds of the fraud. The government would dispute that it is not Jack Fisher's asset. This seems like a complex move involving a lot of hassle and expense. It also seems kind of cruel to seize a horse. Is this what they do in the ordinary course of business? The IRS and other government agencies will seize all types of assets, yachts, cars, houses, jewelry, artwork. Animals are also some of those assets, but of all the assets they seize, animals probably take the most work. And, you know, there's the chance the animal could die, which would then leave the asset without any value. I had spoken with a former U.S. Marshal's chief inspector who, as part of a case a decade ago in Dixon, Illinois, seized several hundred quarter horses, which were owned by a woman named Rita Crundwell, who was convicted of stealing $53.7 million from the city of Dixon, Illinois, where she worked. And she had used the money that she stole to help finance her breeding and showing of these American quarter horses. The government eventually auctioned more than 400 of those horses, including one of them, for $775,000. And as that former marshal told me, any asset is a liability to the government, but an animal is a significant liability because they have to eat and they require veterinarian care, and ultimately they could die. And this is being done before her father is even convicted. He's just been indicted at this point. Correct. It's what's known as a pre-conviction seizure, and it goes on a lot. The government holds the asset And in the event that the defendant is acquitted, the asset is returned to them. Now, there are some instances where the government and the defendant can agree to a sale of the asset, and then the amount that they raise through that sale would be returned to the defendant if they're acquitted. In the case of an asset that has great emotional value to a defendant or whomever it's seized from, as in the case with Christina Fisher, she did not agree to the sale of her horse Lex, and so they were not going to do a sale in that instance. There are some other times where defendants would say, it's okay, go ahead and sell it, and then they would hold the amount that they raised in escrow until the disposition of the case. So if the government doesn't get permission for a sale, they have to maintain all these expensive assets, not only the horses, but the cars, the yachts. The whole coordinated strategy on seizing assets and maintaining assets, once they're in custody, in general, the practice is to sell them as quickly as possible as soon as they have legal permission to do so, because any asset depreciates in value particularly a yacht. It costs a great deal of money to maintain a yacht. There's the 255-foot yacht Tango, which is owned by billionaire Victor Vexelberg, 
It was seized by Spain at the behest of the United States, and it's worth about $95 million, according to the government. And the net operating cost of that superyacht is about 10% of the boat's value. So that's quite a bit of money. And generally, as I say, what the government is trying to do is sell assets as quickly as possible so that they can use the proceeds to either compensate victims or punish criminals for their illicit behavior or pay for government agencies that are involved in law enforcement. 10% of the value of the yacht for maintenance, that's almost $10 million. That's an astonishing amount of money. It's not cheap to be an oligarch. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get back to Christina and Lex. She wanted to ride him at her wedding. What happened? She wanted her horseback for her wedding. They took it 10 days before the wedding, took the horse down to Florida, And she was very distraught, and her lawyer negotiated an agreement with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Atlanta, which is leading the prosecution of her father, Jack Fisher, who, by the way, pleaded not guilty and may not go to trial for a couple of years because of a backlog in Atlanta. And the government agreed to return the horse to her for a $25,000 deposit. And there's also an agreement that if Jack Fisher is convicted, she can pay what's known as the replacement value for the asset. And I should say that while he bought the horse for $750,000 in early 2017, after they seized the horse, the government determined that his value is $145,000 and that he would cost forty dollars to $50,000 a year to maintain. So if the trial was two or three years out, it really wasn't worth it for the government to keep Lex in their custody. And so they agreed to return it to Christina, which also for the government had the benefit of shifting the liability back to her, because if he was injured or died, then it would be her responsibility and not the government. And she got Lex back just 10 hours before her wedding? At one in the morning, 10 hours before her wedding, a driver returned to Lex in a trailer from Florida. She was very relieved. She said that he was very cranky, but he got off the trailer and he immediately whinnied at me. She then rode him through the stable where she had her wedding and her wedding train was draped over his hindquarters. So that went off well. I should say that After that, though, she owns eight horses in that stable, and several of them developed equine herpes, and Lex tested positive as well. One of the horses in her stable died on the way to a hospital in Tennessee, and another one was in the hospital. And she believes that Lex got this virus on the trip to Florida because he hadn't left the stable for three months before then. And so she's angry at the IRS over that. And she said that she feels violated and helpless, that she's not part of the case, and she's not part of her father's business, and that the IRS took an innocent animal. I wonder why, knowing when the trial was going to be, and then knowing the cost of boarding a horse like this, why they would even seize a horse so quickly. It just doesn't make any sense financially. 
Well, it's a reasonable question, and we tried to ask the IRS, and they didn't respond. But one could infer that by returning the horse within 10 days of when they seized it, it's essentially an implicit admission by the IRS that maybe it was not a good idea. And tell us how Lex is doing. Lex is doing fine. By all accounts from Christina, he's very close with her. They've been through a lot together. I believe he's still getting over his illness. But she's happy to have him back, and he's happy to be back. So I guess it's a happy ending for Lex and Christina. Thanks so much, David. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter David Voriakis. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The personality cult of Bill Huang's collapsed family office is at the heart of a $50 million lawsuit filed yesterday by former Archegos managing director Brendan Sullivan, who claims he's owed the money from deferred bonuses he was forced to invest with the company. He alleges that Huang did whatever it took to make money with the goal of becoming the richest person in the world. Joining me is Greg Farrell, Bloomberg investigative reporter with the legal enforcement team. Tell us about Huang and his 
religion and evangelizing at the office? Well, I don't know the guy, but he has a reputation, and I think he cultivated this reputation over many years of you know having a deep Christian faith. He set up a uh, charity, uh, the Grace and Mercy Foundation. But in this lawsuit in particular, the one that was filed yesterday, the charity is painted very much as just another vehicle through which um, Bill Huang could basically do his trades, have a backup in case things went wrong at Archegos, which, of course, they did. And then, of course, there are sort of tax benefits to having a foundation. One of the allegations in yesterday's civil complaint was that the amount of money you know, that was given out by the charity, although it seems large to the average onlooker, actually was a smaller percentage of what it had than, you know, other comparable charities. In other words, there was the suggestion that this Christian charity, the charitable foundation, um, had other purposes rather than just to give away, just be philanthropic. Didn't he sort of force or encourage his employees to attend scripture readings and things like that? Yes. So according to the lawsuit, right, his uh, apparent, you know, religiosity played a big role in the way he ran the company, or at least in terms of the types of people he wanted to have on board. And then once they were there, the the encouragement uh, to go attend scripture readings uh, in concert with the Grace and Mercy Foundation and, you know, basically making religious statements or comments part of his business. So uh, I don't want to past judgment on another guy's religious faith, but he at times seemed to be very serious about acting the act, but at other times, according to the lawsuit, this was, you know, it was described as purported religiosity. So, like I say, it's it's puzzling. It's part of Bill Huang's mystique, and, you know, as a practical matter, after his legal problems of a decade ago, it probably did, you know, go some distance to help him rehabilitate his image, at least in certain parts of the world of finance. So go back a bit. Wang and the former chief financial officer are facing federal charges. What does that involve? So they've been accused of conspiracy, market manipulation, and conspiracy to basically defraud banks or at least lie to banks. And as you know, it's federal crime to make misrepresentations to banks in order to get, you know, credit or some kind of a benefit. Now, they're not charged with, you know, those lies like causing the banks to lose money, just lying to them. In one hearing that they had like a month ago, I think, there was a preview of what the defense is going to be like. And then Bill Huang, who is charged with market manipulation, is going to fight that aggressively, saying he's just an investor who wants to see his stocks go up. So he kept buying the stocks, and the stocks went up. I mean, at a certain basic level, you know, is there something wrong with that? So that's going to be one aspect of his defense. And Patrick Halligan's defense, you know, that he lied to banks, made misrepresentations is, you know, his lawyer said something to the effect, hey, come on, this is like the NBA and it's LeBron James versus Shaq. There's a lot of elbows, you know, that when different counterparties are competing, you know, this sort of thing happens. This is the way the rules are. And they're all adults. These big banks shouldn't be pitied because they're ignorant and they were fooled by poor little Bill Wang and Pat Halligan. So that's going to be their attempted defense on the, you know, lying to make false statements to banks charge. So tell us about this suit by former... So this suit is different. So a former managing director and analyst 
Brendan Sullivan filed this civil suit yesterday and basically uh, covered, and one of the things we found interesting about it is that it sort of opened up the world of Bill Huang's Archegos and, and how it operated. And also, it uh, covered an area that was not mentioned at all in the federal prosecutor's case against uh, charges against Bill Huang a few months ago, namely how employees like Brendan Sullivan and presumably others felt that they were coerced into you know, putting the maximum amount of their bonus money into a deferred compensation plan that was, quote-unquote, guaranteed by our Chaco's management, you know, to never lose money, or at least the principal will never decline, only, of course, to have it, you know, run to zero when Judgment Day came in, in March of last year. So there was all sorts of color about how you know, Brendan Sullivan and others must have felt coerced, how they felt like it was in their best interest to do what, you know, Bill Huang suggested, even when they wanted to, you know, cash out or get some of the money out earlier, et cetera. They were encouraged to stay. And when they raised questions about the performance of the fund overall, how not to worry, you know, the escape pod for Archegos would be the Grace and Mercy Foundation, where Bill Huang, you know, had planned allegedly to keep on trading if things didn't go that well with his fund. Sullivan claims that employees were sort of forced to invest a chunk of their annual bonuses. Yes, yes. insofar as you you were allowed to contribute, you know, a much bigger chunk of your bonus into the deferred comp plan, or you know, you could put in just a smaller fraction of that. And he was interested in the smaller fraction part, but it was made clear to him that the decision on how much he'd get for his bonus would not be decided until. He made his decision as to how much of it was going to go into the deferred comp plan. So it was clearly viewed by by Sullivan and presumably others as, you know, if you know it's good for you, your bonus will be bigger if you decide to put more of it in the fund. So it's alleged that basically Bill Wang was using the deferred compensation plan as a like an interest-free loan, you know, extra money he could use to play with when he was in the markets. So that's an, another aspect of Sullivan's lawsuit that's interesting is that, you know, he's claiming fraud, you know, fraud on behalf of Bill Wang and other, not just the CFO, Patrick Halligan, who's been charged, but four other named executives he's accusing of fraudulent conduct. And that has not been charged. So, it, you know, I'm not sure if this is going to be something that will be suddenly get on the radar screen of federal prosecutors or if this is something that the feds will leave to be sorted out in civil court. As you mentioned, the suit gives some insight into the way the company was run by Wang. And loyalty to Wang, not performance, was the most important. And if you criticized or questioned, you were publicly reprimanded. Yes. Well, first of all, loyalty over performance, because it was not like other hedge funds where you had your own money to play with and you could be judged as to how Bill Huang made all the decisions or all the primary decisions. So if the performance was Bill Huang's, you know, I'm not sure you or I would have like a good year or bad year if we were there because you're basically just making recommendations, but it's Bill Huang who makes the ultimate judgment. Yes, loyalty was prized because there were occasions when an employee would question like, why are we buying you know, so many shares of this little company over and over again every day. And the anecdote as recounted in the lawsuit is that Bill Wang, you know, replied in an email and hit all, you know, shared it with the entire Ooh. company just to humiliate the employee who'd raised this question, which doesn't sound very Christian when you come down to it. And that this was part of like management by intimidation at the firm. So the basic claim of the lawsuit is that the employees were forced to put their money in the deferred compensation plan? Coerced to put the maximum amount in, yes. 
and then to keep it there as long as possible. In other words, the fund folded in March of last year, but that was a full year into COVID. There could have been times earlier when we don't know yet when some of the participants wanted money out, but were sweet-talked and encouraged to just stay, we'll get through this, et cetera, et cetera. And then everything's fine, don't worry, it's not going to go below par, so your money, money's guaranteed, et cetera, et cetera. So when is that you know, puffery and reassurance, and when is that fraud? Well, there are 20 counts claimed in the civil suit, and a lot of them have to do with violations of ERISA guidelines. There are rules regarding this, so they're charging not just like they were talking it up, but that you're breaking you know, laws that protect people's pensions by making misrepresentations about them in various ways and using the money for other purposes, etc. So um, those are among the 20 legal claims that are part of the civil suit. So is the Grace and Mercy Foundation still in operation? I don't know that. Certainly, it's not in operation so far as a freestanding charity. It was so closely attached. I think it's probably been by creditors, just everything's been frozen for now, you know, while all sorts of litigation starting in March of last year began against Wang. My next question was really, let's say they win a judgment here. Where would the money for that judgment come from? Good question. It's really unclear because you know, obviously some of the banks want a piece of, of that as well, banks that lost a, mo- a lot of money. And this is how the criminal case will come into play. If Wang and Halligan are convicted of crimes, that, you know, bolsters the bank's standing that they were defrauded and the ones who lost money and that they'd like some. The fact of the, you know, this is not, you know, legal advice, but the fact that Bill Wang and his CFO have been charged criminally helps the civil case to some extent, too, because in a civil case, if this actually ever went to court, is that, oh, by the way, the defendant in this case has also been charged criminally with the same conduct. That would, not that this would ever go to a jury trial, but, you know, if it did, you know, the fact that the, you know, top two executives at this fund, you know, and Brendan Sullivan sued is against, you know, have been charged criminally, maybe it wouldn't have legal standing, but to any jury, it would be a point of interest, if you know what I mean. And does anyone really know how much money Bill Wang has now? It's, it's not clear. So that's going to be part of this whole exercise. Is this a tough case to make out? Well, it's going to be secondary. The key thing for Bill Wang right now is the criminal charge. That's obviously that he could put him in prison for the rest of his life. So this is a civil suit. This is just not as important right now as the criminal charges facing him and Pat Halligan. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Greg Farrell, Bloomberg investigative reporter with the legal enforcement team. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.